We are in Romans 15, and if you'll turn your Bibles to Romans 15, we're going to spend a few minutes in Romans 14 and 15 together this morning. Romans 15, verse 1. Now we who are strong ought to bear with the weaknesses of those without strength, and not just please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good, to his edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproach you fell on me. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, accept one another just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. Lord, your word through Paul to the church there in Rome seems to me to become more potent with every verse that we read. More profound, more practical, and more life-affecting and life-changing. I cannot thank you enough for inspiring Paul to write this letter. For the doctrine that we've learned in it for the truth and the encouragement that we've seen of the Scriptures and and by Your Spirit. Thank You, Lord. And thank You for the word of Your encouragement this morning. Because to each of us as a fellowship of believers, this means so much. To us as a larger church in this world, we still have much to learn when it comes to accepting one another. And I simply pray, Lord, that You will impress on all of our hearts exactly what your heart is in this matter. Continue, Lord, to grow and to change and to mature us. Father, for the kingdom to come. Holy Spirit, we rely on you to teach us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be wondering about the title of today's teaching. What is the point of the pinky toe? I mean, really. What's it there for? It's cute and all, but but what does it lend to the body? I ran across an article in Popular Science written by Sally Zhang. And she writes, the answer goes back to the evolutionary history of humans. (laughs) Explained by Dr. Anish Kadakia, assistant professor in orthopedic surgery at Northwestern University, quote, primates use their feet to grab and claw and climb trees, but humans, we don't need that function anymore, Katakia says. Clearly, we're not jumping up and down trees and using our feet to grab. Well, most of us aren't. We have toes embryologically evolutionary for that particular reason because we descended from apes but we don't need them as people. I did not descend from an ape, regardless of what people may have said. (laughs) 
Thankfully, the author at this point stopped monkeying around. (laughs) And got down to a a non-apish biological reason for the little toe. Check this out. We owe our balance to the 26 bones that make up the hind foot, the midfoot, and the forefoot. But the main bones responsible for our balance are the metatarsals, explains Dr. Winjay Sung, attending physician at White Memorial Medical Group. We walk, he says, in a tripod fashion where the big toe and the fifth toe knuckle, the big toe knuckle, the fifth toe knuckle, and the heel have a tripod walking ability, if you remove one part of that tripod, you lose your balance. So, if you think about that, and and it goes to the marvel of, of creation, that God, even with the foot, took such care in building and constructing our feet in such a way that they maintain balance. The big toe knuckle coming out and jutting out ultimately in the big toe. And the pinky toe knuckle jutting out in the pinky toe. And then finally the calcaneus heel, the, the bone there is the calcaneus bone. That those three together function to give us balance. It's, it's how you can balance on one foot. And as you walk one foot to the next. So you could say on balance there's something to the little toe. That God knew what he was doing. Ask my wife Cheryl. Two years ago, just before we left for our trip to Israel, she caught her pinky toe on the corner of the sofa and broke it. And in that moment, she, I heard her stub her toe. I mean, that was nothing new, you know. And, and she said, oh, look at this. And I looked down, and if my hand was her foot, her toe was jutting out at a right angle. It was, I was like, ooh. <laughs> Like, you're going to need to take care of that. <laughs> yeah, she had to have it straightened out and pulled forward. I mean, it, it was amazing. And, and the impact of the little toe injury on, on Cheryl was, was astounding to me. We need our pinky toes. They're a big deal when it comes to the foot and to our balance. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 14, Paul applied the entire human body to the church. He said the body is not one member, but many. And he said in 1 Corinthians 12, 18, God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as He has desired. Please understand that that means every single person in the auditorium here this morning. That means every single person who is fellowshipping as a part of the bridge. It means every single individual person, old, young, small, tall, it doesn't make any difference throughout the entire church, in the entire world, in fact, throughout the last 2,000 years, every single individual is part of the body by the will of God. I don't know what that says to you, but what that says to me is I have a place. And I have a purpose in this family, in this church. And at times when I feel like I am not worth a whole lot, I'm just kind of a pinky, you know? I'm just a little toe. Not true. Every one of us have place in this. God has so placed you where you are in the position you are for His purposes. I don't always know what those purposes are. Maybe you don't know. Maybe you sit in church and wonder sometimes, 
what value am I to all this? I just might as well go about my own life. Well, that's the enemy whispering. Because the truth is, your value is great. God has so placed you in the body. Every person in the body of Christ. Little toes, big toes, even heels. (laughs) Seemingly weaker and stronger parts all together so that on balance the body of Christ will function the way we're supposed to. By the way, We're going to talk about being weak or strong in faith. In these two chapters, that's what Paul is covering. The weak in faith, the strong in faith. Let me make this very clear before we go any further. Weak or strong has nothing whatsoever to do with righteousness. Please understand that. Because in our human thinking, we think, well, the weaker in faith are not as righteous. Not so. If you are covered by the blood of Christ, it does not matter who you are or how strong your faith is. Even if you have a tiny little speck of faith, you believe in Jesus, guess what? You are as righteous as any other person in the church. Because He makes us righteous. We don't make us righteous. The amount of my faith does not equate to the amount of my righteousness because my righteousness was blood-bought by Jesus, not by Rick. That alone, I think, is worth the whole morning. To understand that whether you are a giant of the faith in the Christian church or just a little Sunday school teacher maybe, that you are as righteous as the next member of the body because of what Jesus did. We are equal in righteousness, my friends. Mark that. The so-called weaker in faith are no less righteous or saved or loved by Jesus than are the strong in faith. Romans 3.21, Paul wrote, but now apart from the law, Apart from the law, that is apart from anything you can do, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For all those who believe, for there is no distinction. By faith in Jesus, even a little faith, you are righteous. You're righteous. And weak or strong, we did not achieve that. Now, as we come to the end of Paul's letter, and as I prayed a few minutes ago, I I continue to be amazed at how he goes deeper and deeper. It becomes more profound and more potent in terms of what Paul is getting across and how it applies to our lives. After laying out that original section on condemnation and explaining why condemnation exists, what it looks like, and the fact that God does not want it for anybody, he moves into that glorious section of salvation. And as he talks through salvation, he leads into sanctification and God's sanctifying work. That is God's righteousness on us. And then after all of that, we got into Romans 9, you recall, and we saw God's vindication through His people Israel, that God's faithfulness is vindicated. And now we come into the final section, beginning with chapter 12, what we would call the exhortations. And as we talked about Wednesday night, I think last Wednesday or perhaps the week before, that that the Lord always follows doctrine with encouragement. Every book in the Bible does it. You get doctrine first, and then you get encouragement. You get teaching as to the will and purposes of God, and then you get, okay, now what do you do with it? 
And that's the section that we're in, in Romans 12 through 16, the what do you do with it section. And truly it's what we've been calling the kingdom preparation section. Because it's here that Paul is pulling it all together and saying, now listen, put this together, live by it, because you are being prepared, not for this age, but for the next age. This is not about being a good Christian now. It is about being a priest and a ruler with Christ then. So everything that we're learning and everything that's being applied in us and to us and through us is for later. It's for then. So much more than it is for now. As Romans 12 verse 2 says, Do not be conformed to this age. Be transformed to the next. That's the encouragement throughout. And the place... The place where this is best worked out may be surprising to you. If you were asked the question, where do I think is the best location on the planet for me to live out Christian principle, to work out Christian ideals? I think many of us would say the marketplace. You know, at work. That's where I really got to, you know, put hands and feet to the work. The best place to learn and live out Christian ideals is in the church. Why? Because it's the hardest. Because as I shared on Wednesday night, God takes all of these different members of the body and He squeezes us all into one body and says, now, love each other. What? Yeah, love each other. And you know the basis for the body is not any affiliation that we have one with another. It's that we love Jesus. And so that means we've got a body of very disparate personalities and ideals and backgrounds and people. All in the same body. The place where the will of God, the purposes of Jesus and the truth is worked out best is in the church. And apparently, this section's here because the Holy Spirit felt like we needed it. I want to back up a bit now. Look at chapter 14, before we come back and look at 15 toward the end, and listen to what Paul begins to say about all this. Verse 1 of chapter 14, he says, Now accept the one who is weak in faith, not for passing judgment on his opinions, One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat, and the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you? Who are you to judge the servant of another? What do you mean, Paul? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand My friends, we are servants of the Lord. Who are you to judge another servant of the Lord? That's what Paul's saying. You don't judge another master's servant. And we are all servants of the one master, Jesus Christ. And He is the one who is able to make us stand. So again, our righteousness does not come from us. Our strength does not come from us. Jude 24 tells us He is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of His glory blameless with great joy. The weak don't stumble in their weakness 
and the strong don't stand in their strength in the presence of God. He is the one who makes all of us stand, weak or strong. It's His power. It's His strength. Now Paul deals with two issues. We we talked a little bit about this on Wednesday. I moved through this section rather quickly, but we, we talked about... How there are a couple of issues that Paul pulls out that were going on in the early church. These were a big deal. These were hot buttons, if you will, of the, of the early church. They could be any two issues. We'll even pull out a couple of issues today just to make it more clear. But the issues then were menus and calendars. Menus and calendars. The food you eat and the days you keep. When it came to menus, there were people in the church, and we believe this is the problem that Paul is addressing in Rome. He addresses it even more specifically in Corinth. But the problem was there were people, Christians, who had no problem picking up their meat at the local meat market, what was called the shambles. The shambles were the meat markets that sold meat that was left over. Sacrificed to idols, sacrificed to pagan gods, and all the leftover meat was brought to the shambles, and you could buy it at a good price. It was already carved up and cut out and, and good to go. So a lot of the, especially the Greek believers, had no problem with it. It's just meat. I don't believe in those pagan idols anymore. I've I've thrown out all the pagan gods. I only believe in Jesus. This is just meat. It has no bearing on me. It's no problem. There are a lot of Jewish believers who said, I can't eat it. It's meat sacrificed to an idol. Just because of the connection. I cannot eat it. And then there were those who kept the calendar. There were Jews especially who said, you've got to keep the new moon festivals and you've got to keep especially the annual festivals of, of Passover and Shavuot and Sukkot. You've got to keep Yom Kippur. You, we've got to continue to keep these things. Yes, we're saved by grace, but we need to keep these holidays. They're part of, of who we are. And the Gentiles were saying, what? You mean every, every Saturday I've got to keep Shabbat? That's boring, man. I don't want to do that. And so there were these disputes between those who would eat meat and those who would not. Those who would keep certain days and those who were not. Listen, and jot this down if you're a note taker. This is so important to getting what Paul's talking about here. These weren't issues of consequence. They were issues of conscience. Not consequence... In other words, eternally speaking, they were inconsequential. They did not matter to God. That's what Paul points out. But they were matters of conscience. That is, individual opinion. One person felt very strongly about not eating meat sacrificed to idols. And Paul would say, don't eat it. Someone else felt like, well, yeah, but... Yeah, but I'm fine eating it. I don't have a problem. Paul would say, go ahead. Enjoy a good burger. It's not an issue. It's not of consequence. It is of conscience. Modern equivalence. Drinking wine. Now you've heard me preach and talk about it's risky. There are dangers involved. I don't believe you've ever heard me preach and say drinking wine is in and of itself a sin. I can't go there. The Bible doesn't. The Bible does teach drunkenness is wrong. Absolutely. It's kind of hard to get drunk if you're not drinking wine or beer or some kind of alcohol. But you know what my point is? The Bible does not condemn the drinking of alcohol. It condemns the drunkenness that comes from it. 
So we have Christians in the church today, we have those who are teetotalers. I are one who says, I won't drink, I'm just not going to. Why not, Rick, is it, is it sin? No, I never said that. But I know for me, and part of it honestly is in my position as a pastor, it's probably best if I just don't. But if you do, are you wrong to? Do I have a right to tell you you're sinning if you're going to have that glass of wine or that beer? No. It's not a matter of consequence. It's a matter of conscience. And you have to be fully convinced in your own mind. That's what Paul says. Christmas. Christmas is a day beloved by countless multitudes of Christians and some don't think so. Some are opposed to it. Even today there are those who say, I just, I don't know. I don't know. Doesn't Jeremiah talk about them bringing trees in and decorating them and doesn't it have something to do with the whole Babylonian and Saturnalia and the Yule log being pagan and all that stuff? Boy, should we celebrate Christmas? It's not an issue of consequence. The Bible doesn't address it. It is an issue of conscience. That is, for the person who has no problem celebrating Christmas, enjoy and celebrate it to the Lord. For the person who does have a problem celebrating Christmas, they should not be imposed upon. I shouldn't be up here preaching and trying to press them to do what I do. Because it's not a matter of consequence. It is a matter of conscience. And it's important to get that, that neither burgers, beer, new moon festivals, or Christmas were doctrinal issues. They were personal issues. And that's the distinction here, and it's so important to get. I'll explain more in a minute. But they were personal issues Paul's dealing with, not doctrinal. Look at verse 5. Paul says, one person needs, regards, regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Each, each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. If you are convicted about a matter of opinion, good, fine, be convicted. Stand with integrity before the Lord. You have every right and every freedom to keep that conviction. I will honor the brother or sister who does not celebrate Christmas. They have the right to that opinion. And I will honor that because they are keeping, they are not keeping that day to the Lord. I keep the day to the Lord. We do Christmas Eve services to the Lord. I focus my entire energy on that holiday to the Lord. Thinking about the birth of Jesus, the incarnation, that marvelous moment when God entered the world. I love it. I do that to the Lord. But it's opinion. Not doctrine. Now, the, the incarnation is not opinion. That is doctrine. That Jesus, that God became flesh. And, yes, that's doctrinal truth. That is not disputable. That's not a matter of opinion. But whether or not we celebrate the day, that's up to you. Whatever you want to do with it. Just don't force your opinion on someone else. This is amazing because it's all coming from a one-time Pharisee of Pharisees. Verse 6. Paul says, He who observes the day observes it for the Lord. And he who eats does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not for the Lord, he does not eat and gives thanks to God. Listen to it put this way. Again, verse 6. He who observes Christmas observes it for the Lord. And he who drinks a beer 
does so for the Lord. Well, that was a little more difficult, but you know what I'm trying to say. <laughs> for he gives thanks to God. That's the whole point. And so we live our lives in thanks to the Lord. And if in whatever you're doing, you're having trouble living unto the Lord in it, having trouble eating or drinking to the Lord, celebrating a day to the Lord, then maybe you ought to reconsider the day. Or reconsider what it is you're consuming. But again, there are matters of opinion and there are matters of doctrine. And we need to make sure we're clear on which is which. Romans chapter 7 verse 6. Paul says, now we have been released from the law. Having died to that by which we were bound, so that we may serve in newness of the Spirit, and not in oldness of the letter. We're not to be spending all our time disputing things that are a matter of opinion and not a matter of biblical doctrine. Romans 8.2, Paul said, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Galatians 5.1 It was for freedom that Christ has set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Maybe you've been in that place. Someone's tried to impose a yoke of slavery on you. Last week, was it last week I talked about tithing? No, the week before. Talked a little bit about tithing. Actually, I didn't talk about tithing. I talked about faithfulness. But that whole issue of tithing, I cannot teach that as a doctrinal absolute. I believe it's a great tool of faithfulness. But I cannot look at you or any other believer in Christ and say, if you don't tithe, you're wrong, because to do so would be legalistic. And we do not serve legalistically. We are under grace. And it's important, again, even to recognize that. Now you might say, with all this, couldn't you make a case for anything goes? You know, morally speaking. And again, I say, not at all. Galatians 5.13 says, You were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Understand, Paul is not talking about doctrine. He's talking about opinion. Rick, you've said that a dozen times. I don't want us to miss this. Or to misunderstand it. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3 tells us the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. Titus chapter 1, verse 9 says, Overseers must hold fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. So there is something to the sound biblical doctrine and adhering to the things of Scripture. Because doctrine, the teaching of God's word, is never subject to personal opinion, though some have tried to make it so. Doctrine is not up to you or me to decide what we're going to accept, what we're not going to accept. Doctrine is doctrine. God's Word is God's Word. It is what it is. Take it or leave it. Just don't water it down as if our human opinions are of any eternal consequence. For example, as I said, drunkenness. Drunkenness is clearly spelled out in the Bible as sin. That is biblical doctrine. 
If you're getting drunk, you are sinning against the Lord. That is not a matter of, oh, that's <laughs> not that big. It is a big deal. Doctrinally speaking. If you're having a wine on, glass of wine on a Friday night, that's a matter of conscience. You have to determine the line. We have the freedom to do so. Saturnalia and celebrating pagan worship would be a matter of doctrine. You do not celebrate paganism. You do not celebrate pagan gods and goddesses. Things opposed to God. And yet, on the other hand, some churches put up Christmas trees and big honking Christmas wreaths around the windows behind where the pastor teaches every year. (laughs) One is conscience, the other is doctrine. And we need to understand the difference between the two. Paul is saying, if it's conscience, fine. Be convinced. Don't impose matters of conscience over matters of biblical consequence. And that's a real key to unity in the church. Not disputing over things that are not disputable issues in the Bible. You want to dispute over things that are biblical, let's look chapter and verse and let's deal with the truth. But if it's just your opinion about something or my opinion about something, well, then let's see that for what it is too and respect the differences that we will have among each other. Some other things to understand here. Who is the weak of faith that Paul is talking about? He says, accept the weaker brother or accept the one who is weak in faith. Well, who is that? This might surprise you. Second thing to note this morning. The weaker aren't less righteous they are more religious the weaker are not less righteous as we talked about we're all made righteous by Jesus but the weaker brother is the more religious brother how do you know that well I know what Paul says he who is weak eats vegetables only what does that mean this is the person who is religious Now, I'm not not talking about your personal dietary habits. Please understand. He's talking about the first century Christian who would not eat meat at all because to do so simply might, might cross a line. He's talking about a religious mentality, a religious attitude, a legalistic perspective. He says the legalist is the weaker brother or sister. The legalist. The one who majors in the minors. This is a person who is uneasy with the whole concept of freedom in Christ. You see, because the weaker brother or sister still needs the safe, fenced-in yard of religion. And this is always the person who is most easily offended over matters of opinion. I can't believe he mentioned drinking a glass of wine. That's That's just not okay. I would never do that. Maybe you wouldn't. And the weaker brother or sister says, I I can't even engage in that conversation. It makes them uncomfortable because freedom in Christ and grace is something that is just a little too wild. And so once again in verse 1 of chapter 14, Paul says, except the one who is weak in faith but not for passing judgment on his opinions, one person has faith that he may eat all things. But he who is weak eats vegetables only. The bottom line is the more religious and legalistic I am, the weaker I become. Why? Why is that the case? Because my faith is now in myself. If I am religious, my faith is in my ability to keep things straight. And that makes a person weak. 
Whereas, when my faith is in God's righteousness, in Jesus, well, that makes me strong. Think about it this way. Whose righteousness is greater, yours or God's? So whose righteousness do you stand on? Who do you lean on? Psalm 71.16 I will come with the mighty deeds of the Lord God. I will make mention of your righteousness, yours alone. What does that say? It says I'm not going to talk about my righteousness. I'm just going to talk about His. Revelation 15.4 Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify Your name? For You alone are holy. For all the nations will come and worship before You. For Your righteous acts have been revealed. And even when we talk about the righteous acts of the saints in Revelation 19, note that the righteous acts of the saints are given to her. The bride wears this fine linen, white and clean, which is the righteous acts of the saints, which have been given to her. We can't even claim the dress, gang. Righteousness is given to us. And the strong in faith simply understand where their strength comes from. You could say, number three, note this, the strong aren't necessarily more faithful, but they are more free. They're more free. And furthermore, those who are stronger in faith, and as you grow stronger in faith, this occurs, you become more and more kingdom-minded. The strong in faith are kingdom-minded people. They don't fear the things of this age, even things that go on within the church. Look at verse 17 of chapter 14. Paul writes, For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's the strong in faith. They're not worried about days on the calendar. They're not worried about what they're eating or what they're drinking. The strong in faith, listen, the strong in faith hold to sound biblical teaching. The strong in faith recognize personal opinion for what it is. The strong in faith, they look to Jesus coming and the strong in faith in all relationships, and here's the point, they love. They love. Love defines the walk. Now, one more clarification. What is a stumbling block? Look at verse 13 of chapter 14. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, or judge this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Stumbling block. What does it mean to put a stumbling block in the way of a brother or a sister? Well, he uses two words here, and it's interesting when we translate them into English that they actually are opposite of what they would seem. He uses the word obstacle, and then he uses the word stumbling block. The word obstacle in the Greek is proskoma. And the word that's translated obstacle here, proskoma, is translated stumbling block. So obstacle should be stumbling stumbling block. That's what the first word there is. And it is something, an obstacle, it is a stumbling block, a proskuma. It is used in the context of something that actually causes another person to sin. That's a proskuma, an obstacle, a stumbling block. Now the Greek word for stumbling block here is a little different. It's Scandalon, where we get our word scandal or scandalized. And a scandalon is now an obstacle that offends. 
You have two things that Paul says, let us, as brothers and sisters in Christ, let us do this. Let's think this way. There are two issues at hand here, and he's dealing with this through the whole chapter. There is the stumbling block that forces someone into a position of sinning, and there is the scandal on which offends somebody. One causes sin, the other one causes an offense. And here, Paul, after clarifying all the freedom we have in Christ and saying, don't be driven by opinions, he does somewhat of a roundabout on us. It's unexpected. He says, in both matters of biblical doctrine and personal opinion, let's be sensitive to the conscience of others. Biblical doctrine, as far as I'm concerned, completely trounces personal opinion. And if I were writing Romans 14 and 15, I would say, I don't care what your opinion is. I just focus on biblical doctrine. If you've got a wrong opinion, that's your problem, dude. And if I'm offending you, what if? Paul says, hey, the strong of faith do understand there are things that offend and there are things that matter. And the things that offend, you know... The personal offenses, the, the, those little opinionated things, that doesn't matter. And the things, things that are doctrinal, that's what matters. And Paul says the strong in faith understand that. But the strong in faith understand something else too, that those little offenses and those opinions do matter to other people. And so, the strong in faith will respect that. The strong in faith loves enough to say, look, This is not a doctrinal issue, but I see where you're coming from, and I want to honor you in the place that you're at. Love, love, love is always the higher principle. Even over doctrine, even over doctrine. Well, then how do we fend off apostasy and false teaching in the church? Hey, we don't have to worry about it, and I'm speaking to the strong in faith. You don't have to worry about it because love will never deny sound biblical doctrine. What did Jesus say? The the lawyer came up to him and trying to pin him down on legalistic issues said, what's the most important commandment? He knew there were at least 613. Pick one. And Jesus said, oh, that's easy. You can find this in Matthew 22. This is Rick's paraphrase. Simple. The greatest commandment is this, that you love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul, and with all your strength. And he says, oh, and there's a second that's like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then you remember what he said after that? On these hang all the law and the prophets. What does that tell us? That tells us that there is not a law that does not find its application in love. That tells us that love is the basis of all the rest. So if we are loving, like Christ Jesus, if we love, we will keep the commandments of God. It's a natural. Because God is love, and then He gives commandments. Those commandments come from the place of love, and as we love each other, we keep the commandments. See, the weaker brother says, keep the commandments and you will prove that you you, you love God. The stronger brother says, I love God, and therefore don't worry about the commandments because they're kept in love. Okay, go to chapter 15. Verse 1. Now we who are strong 
ought to bear with the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. I grew up hating the word stumbling block or the phrase. And the reason was the weaker legalistic religionists used it all the time. I heard it all the time. It was always thrown in my face. You can't wear flip-flops to church. You're putting a stumbling block in my path. I always wondered how. How is my wearing flip-flops making you sin? I don't get it. I didn't get it as a seven-year-old. You know when the deacon came up to me? And he did. I didn't just pull this one out of my head. This truly happened. On a Sunday night, I walk into church. I've got these cool leather sandals on. They weren't even flip-flops. I got these cool little leather sandals that my mom had bought for me, I don't know, at the local store. And I walk into church, and he looks at me and says, You wore sandals to church? Seven years old, I said, Well, Jesus did. The die was cast way back then, my friends. You're putting a stumbling block in my path, he said. You're weird. I didn't, I, I didn't get that when I got older. You can't listen to Van Halen. That guy's evil. First of all, it's a band, not a guy. But I understand what you're saying. He would say that. You, you can't listen to that rock and roll. You're sinning. Well, I don't think so. We had this whole issue come up, maybe I've shared this with you before, over the Beatles. Here at the bridge. I had a big conversation. Back when we were in the barn, we had Ken, uh, Ken Mansfield come and speak to us. Some of you remember that. Um, Ken, who worked with the Beatles back in the 60s, back in the heyday, worked on Apple Records and the whole thing, and, and then his life basically tanked after that, and he now preaches the gospel. Got saved. And he shared that. It was a wonderful evening. But we were going to have Brett Williams, who has a Beatles band. Brett's a pastor on the south end of the island. Has a Beatles cover band called Blue Jay Way. We're going to have them come and play. And we had a long discussion among our shepherds about whether or not they could play Beatles music. And I'm like, I love Beatles music. Huge fan. I'm not a fan of the drugs and the light. I get that, you know, and all the girls and all that. I know. But the music, wow. These guys were pioneers. And as a musician, I love it. And we had long conversations. And and brothers who I highly respect were like, we cannot have them playing Beatles music. I'm like, what is this? I mean, my old, you know, kid growing up in, in in a more legalistic church would be like, are you kidding me? But as I listened, here's what I heard. There were guys who, said, who, who brought up, you know, I got stoned listening to that music. I don't really want to hear it. Guess what? Whether or not to play Beatles at the Bridge Fellowship was a matter of opinion. And there were strong opinions on this matter. And we talked about it, prayed about it, and we said, Hey, Brett, why don't you guys come and just do worship music? And they did, to Beatles tunes. But that's another conversation. (laughs) It was opinion, but it was strongly felt. And rightly felt from different positions. I played air guitar to Beatles. I never got stoned to the Beatles. So for me, it wasn't an issue. But to a brother who had gotten high listening to the Beatles, that music was a totally different thing to him. I respect that. You see how we walk out opinions versus doctrine? That's a great example to me of it. Oh, people used to say you can't smoke or chew or go with girls who do. Well, 
<laughs> Remember that one. You know the Bible doesn't address smoking at all? Yes, it does. It says your body's a temple of the Lord. I agree. But it doesn't specifically address smoking. I'm not saying we should all go out and be smokers. I, I never have smoked. I'm not a smoker myself. If so, but if, but if some, listen, if someone wants to smoke and get to heaven faster than me, <laughs> here's the thing. We make issues out of things that the Bible does not make issues. If you're concerned for the health of a brother or sister who smokes, talk to them about it. That's fine. But you tell them in love and in concern for them. Not because they're going to make you stumble. What, you're going to become a smoker because they smoke? That deacon was going to start wearing sandals to church and violate his own conscience because a seven-year-old wore sandals one night? Come on! So all that stuff, I've been working this around in my brain for years. My friends, stumbling block is a favorite argumentative phrase of the weak in faith. The weak in faith typically will bring that one up and say, you're being a stumbling block to me. Why? Because they're focused on their own ten toes and they are desperately trying to balance their faith on their own. They're trying to stand on their own. They're afraid of falling off the foundation. What a horrible place to be. I hope you're not there. I hope you're not afraid of losing what you have in Jesus. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 3.11, No man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Let me ask you a question. How easy is it to fall off that foundation? I love that Jesus is not called a pebble in a stream. He's not called a a pointy stone on which we balance. He's called a foundation. Stand in the middle of the foundation of this building and tell me how easy is it for you to fall off. Jesus said so clearly, you're in my hand. Nobody can snatch you out of my hand. He doubles it up. He says, you're in the Father's hand. Nobody can snatch you out of the Father's hand. Read them both. John chapter 10. Psalm 26 verse 12. My foot stands on a level place. In the congregations I shall bless the Lord. Now listen. Get this. Understand. I love my freedom in Christ. I am free not to live under the heavy, unwieldy, burdensome weight of religion. I'm really not, I don't have to be a religious guy. I am free not to sin. I am free from condemnation, free from judgment, free from uptight, legalistic, religious constraints, and even free from doctrinal, or from, from doctrinal opinions, not doctrinal opinions, actually, I'm free from personal opinions. You may have differing opinions than me, and it doesn't have bearing on me, that's cool. But listen, and here's where Paul's going with all of this. I'm also free to give up certain freedoms for the sake of a weaker brother or sister. Because I'm free, I can give up that freedom. I have the freedom to drink wine. Why don't I? Because I know I have weaker brothers or sisters around me in certain situations and locations, and I'm free not to drink wine. So I don't. Free not to do those things that may cause harm to someone else. I was free to put on a nice pair of dress shoes as a seven-year-old if I had wanted to. I didn't. I kept wearing sandals. But I had some maturing to do. 
1 Corinthians 9.21, Paul says, For the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. Peter says in 1 Peter 2.16, Act as free men, but do not use your freedom as a covering for evil. Use it as bond slaves of God. And God's bond slaves are free to be bound to the church. To love the weak. To love the strong. And to love all of the body in between. Head to toe. Verse 2 of chapter 15, he says, Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good, to his edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Note that. We are to please our neighbor for his good. I don't see in that sentence, you're supposed to do in this church what is good for you. You're supposed to fight for your rights. You're supposed to make sure that everybody panders to your sensitivities. Paul doesn't say that. Now I'm talking to a strong fellowship here. What he says is what you do, you do for others. You don't do for you. You seek the edification, the building up of brothers and sisters in Christ. Even to your own detriment? Yes. Because as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. And that's talking about Jesus. And by the way, he's quoting directly from Psalm 69, verse 6. Let me read you the context of this. Psalm 69, verse 6. Actually, it's verse 9 he's quoting, but listen to this. May those who wait for you not be ashamed through me. O Lord God of hosts, may those who seek you not be dishonored through me, O God of Israel. Because for your sake I have borne reproach, dishonor has covered my face. I have become estranged from my brothers and an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. It's astounding. Psalm 69, written by David, both David and the son of David, about whom Psalm 69 is truly written, Jesus, both willingly rejected self-interest for the sake of God's people. Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to set aside self for others? No matter how that feels? I can tell you how it felt for Jesus. It felt like nails going through His hands and feet. Verse 4 of Romans 15. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. I love that verse. But don't rest your hope on opinion. Rest your hope on the encouragement of the Scriptures. You will not persevere through misunderstandings or conflict by putting your hope on opinion, on personal stuff but on the Word of God. Psalm 119.83. I love this psalm, or this verse. Though I have become like a wineskin in the smoke. He covers both drinking and smoking in one verse. (laughs) Though I have become like a wineskin in the smoke, I do not forget your statutes. Man, even if I'm wiped out for it, even if I'm dried up, even if I'm all smoked out, by others and, and by the world and even in the church. Man, I'm not going to give up statutes of God. I'm going to stick to the Word of God. And the Word of God declares more than anything else, love. 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 
Hebrews 10.35 says, Do not throw away your confidence which has a great reward. You have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. Verse 5 of Romans 15, Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, so that, this is marvelous, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now he's not talking about a Honda. That you may in one accord, I had to look the word up, accord. Homothumadon is the word. Homothumadon, it's a great word in the Greek, and it's actually used several times in the New Testament, 10 or 11 times, and it's from two different words. Homo, which means unity, it's where we get our word homos, like homo sapien, which means a unified uh, man or woman. Homos, unity, and thumos, so it's homothumadon, thumus, which means a passionate rushing flow. A unified flow. That's what one accord means. It's a passionate togetherness. Man, we are in this together. Let me give you a great example of where homothumadon, where it's used, Acts 4.23. When Peter and John had been released, they went to their own and reported all the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard, they lifted their voices to God with homothumadon. They lifted their voices to God with one accord. They, paid, they prayed that, that passionate prayer, that glorious prayer there in the room together that ended up shaking the house as the Holy Spirit came rushing in. That's a marvelous story. It's a marvelous truth. My friends, this is the sound God wants to hear. One voice glorifying to God, glorifying the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. One voice in one accord. Not bitterness or or rancor or clamor or disagreement or debate. No. One voice glorifying God all together. You see, Christian love gives voice to worship. And if you've never made the connection before, make it right now. Your worship is best when it comes from a place of loving in the body. A loving, unified body can worship God. If you sit there in bitterness, you are not able to even worship God. In fact, I don't believe He'll hear you. It's in that place of love that our voices grow together and we lift up praise to Jesus. 1 Peter 1.22 Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. He uses both words, Peter does, Philadelphia and agape. Man, you got a sincere brotherly love. That's great. That's wonderful. Go on to agape. Love from the heart. 1 John 3.14, John writes, We know this, that we have passed out of death and into life. How do we know? Because we love the brethren. We agape the brethren. And he who loves does not abide in death. He who loves not abides in death. The greater my love of the brethren... 
the more beautifully orchestrated the sound of my worship until we all together will say as we sing in Revelation 19 verse 1, After these things I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. I've told you before, that is a quote of us in heaven praising God in the future. Revelation chapter 19 verse 6 goes on, Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude, like the sound of many waters and the sound of mighty peals of thunder. Again, gang, it's us in the heavenly choir praising God, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God the Almighty reigns. Let me end with this. Romans 15 verse 7. Therefore, accept one another just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. That is radical. I know I've said this about probably a dozen other verses in Romans, but that one's worth the whole book for me right there. What a radical statement. Accept one another just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. How exactly did He do that? He did it at the cross. In the perfect sacrifice of the bloody cross. He cried out, John 19.30, It is finished! What is finished? All of the work. He bowed His head. He gave up His Spirit. And in that moment, Christ accepted us to the glory of God. You weren't even born yet. You had not even chosen Him, nor had you disappointed Him yet, as we all have and would. But He accepted us. And Paul says, there's the standard of love. That's it. Accept one another to the glory of God, the way Jesus did. How did He do that? He abandoned all personal rights at the cross. Jesus had the right of all doctrinal authority and He had the right of all personal opinion. In fact, in Jesus only, personal opinion and doctrinal authority are the same thing. And yet He set everything aside. He set aside His right to be God. He set aside His right to avenge Himself on His enemies. He set aside His right to be seen as innocent. And I want to leave you with this question. What are we willing to set aside to accept each other in that way? Are we willing to set aside personal opinion? How about pride? How about self-pity? What am I willing to set aside? Not even for the sake of you, my brothers and sisters, and I love you, but for the sake of Jesus. What am I willing to set aside to love you and accept you the way He loved and accepted me? Instead of stomping around in self-righteous treads, what am I willing to set aside to consider the pinky toes? And by the way, from time to time, I can be a pinky toe. I consider myself, and forgive my stupidity and arrogance here, my foolishness, but I consider myself to be strong of faith. 
And yet there are many places in my life and my wife can tell you where I am still very weak. There are times when I'm a bicep for Jesus and other times where I'm a pinky. And in those times when I'm weakest, I desperately need brothers and sisters who will gather around me and bear me up and encourage me. And in those times when I am strongest, I desperately need my weaker brothers and sisters. Did you get that? I need my weaker brothers and sisters. What are you talking about? I didn't choose the pinky toe because it was funny. The pinky toe came to mind. And the reason it came to mind, especially as I looked into it, is while it seems so weak and unnecessary, it is an integral part of the tripod metatarsal structure. Take it away and you get off balance. What a perfect application of what Paul is teaching here in Romans 14 and 15. That there is great value in the weaker brother or sister. How marvelous is that? Even in our weakness sometimes we are of great value to each other. As I said, we are altogether righteous in Jesus, but as the strong bear with the weak, weak and strong together become more like Jesus. And really that's what this is all about. Kingdom is coming, gang. Are we ready? This is how Paul says to do it. If you remember no other exhortation or application out of Romans, remember this. The exhortation to accept one another just as Christ Jesus accepted you. Father, we praise Your name. And it's in moments like these, Lord, when I, when I realize how much greater than us You really are. We realize why You are called the Holy God and the Righteous One. The God of all love and mercy and grace and justice. We realize it, Father, because we begin to see just how far You went to show love to us. To accept the unacceptable. And to love the unlovely, the unlovable. And Lord, when I think about trying to apply this to accept people, to accept my brothers and sisters in Christ, here in the church, as You accepted me, I have a long way to go, Father. I realize there's some sanctifying I need done in my heart. So Father, I pray this morning, sanctify us. Sanctify us in the truth. Your Word is truth and You have spoken truth to us today. May we become more like Jesus, not as a wispy spiritual construct, Father, but in actual practicality. May we walk up to one another and treat each other like Jesus. May we love Father like Jesus, accept like Jesus, forgive like Jesus, trust like Jesus. That we as a body might be on balance. Weak and strong and yet all righteous because of the love that You've shown us. God, You are so good. Thank You for Your Word to us today. In Jesus' name.
Amen.